Our scripture lesson today comes from the prophet Micah, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Let's share in God's good word together. He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Argue, insult. I forget that we're friends and neighbors and coworkers. But kindness can be intentional. It's listening more and talking less. It's recognizing the value of all people and learning from our differences. Kindness brings us together and has the power to change the world. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. I hope that you've memorized this by now, but more importantly, I hope you've begun to live this by now. That's the important thing. So I love that we were able to start this year uh, with this scripture, with this campaign. And I just want you to think about this. Um, Our church has roughly 300 families, uh, which depending on the size of your family, that evens out to about 1,000 people um, that are part of our church community. And so just imagine those 1,000 people, these 300 families. What if every one of us, each family, was completely sold out for justice, for kindness, a church who was humbly serving others and giving God the praise and the credit? What would that look like? Well, friends, it looked like heaven come to earth. That's what heaven is. It would like heaven come to earth. We would be making the crooked places straight in justice. The hungry would be fed through loving kindness. And God would always be first in our minds, first in our hearts, first on our lips, and guiding everything that we do. We would serve Jesus with gladness and singing and leave the results to him. It's his church. Do justice. Love kindness. Keep your eyes on him as you walk with him. Let's do that. Amen? That's good. It'll be a good, good year together. So today we come to Be Humble. We're clo- closing out this B campaign. Uh, next week we'll start our annual relationship boot camp where we talk about how we have our relationships and make those better, whether that's with our spouse, our children, our parents, our coworkers. So there's a, there's a piece of that for every one of us. But as we close up this B campaign, be kind, be loving, be just, be humble. I want to remind us very quickly about the prophet Micah, roughly 25 years old. He's writing in 725 B.C., just three years before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria. And so this northern kingdom of Israel, as is Judah below it, it was this tiny yet strategic place. It was a tiny little piece of land, and it was where all the trade came through from Asia to Africa. still is in some ways today, if you're doing that by ground. And so the map is this. Assyria to the north is up here. It's the major power of the time. Egypt is starting to flex its muscles and become a bigger power. But right here in the middle, these tiny little places, the capital of Israel, Samaria, and the capital of Judah, Jerusalem, this tiny little place right there. Part of that's because of mountain ranges and other geography. But that's roughly um, why it's so important even today. And so Micah warns that the Lord, God himself, will destroy Israel, not because of Assyria, not because of Egypt, but because of their mistreatment of the poor and the powerless. Sometimes it's easy to forget the powerful don't really need defending because they're powerful, right? It's the powerless that God is looking at, is saying you've got to stand up for them because there's nobody else to do that if you don't. 
And so sure enough, the Assyrians, they come in and they conquer Israel in 722 B.C., just three years later, and they destroy their capital, Samaria. Now, not only did they destroy it, uh, there was a temple up there, they completely blew that to the ground, uh, but they took all the wealthy people, all the learned people, all the tradesmen, all the craftsmen, and they pulled them up and out of Israel and Judah later, and they brought them out to places like Nineveh, Mosul, Iraq today. And so it, it would really have a devastating effect on Israel for hundreds of years to come because they had taken away their ability to build back, to rebuild, to become a threat again. And so these people who are now living all over, um, you know, far apart, they don't have a temple, they don't have family and friends, they don't have their leaders, they want to know, what is the one thing we can do to be made right with God so this won't happen to us again? What is the song we can sing? What is the scripture we can read? What is the prayer we can pray to make this all go away? And Micah says, no, no, no. It's way too late for that, friends. We're way past that. And some of you have been there in in your relationships. You forgave and you forgave and you forgave and you worked at it and you worked at it and worked at it. But there's this moment where you just know that's not going to work anymore. You know, one more set of flowers I'm going to do. The only way this is going to work out is if our entire hearts, our entire lives get turned toward the one we love, towards God. And really live for him. Justice every day, not some days. Kindness every day, not some days. Walking humbly with God, not for ourselves. All our days, not just some of them. And so Amos, the prophet Amos, about 30 years earlier, writes this. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Nope, songs won't do it. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let, say it with me, justice roll down like waters and righteousness, rightness, like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God requires. Michael wasn't the first to ring that bell. So in Micah 6, 8, in uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, he says basically that God is more interested in how we live our everyday lives out there than anything we could say that we believe in here. Now, what we do in here is important, but only if it actually, you know, takes feet and goes out and lives out there. So Micah says it like this, but he's already, God has, made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Read it with me. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. And we know from Jesus' teaching, our neighbor is everyone around us. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Nobody likes religious so-and-sos, right? Just take God seriously. Walk with him. Keep your eyes on him. Attention, God calls out to the city. If you know what's good for you, prophet says, you'll listen. All of you. This is serious business. It's not an aside. It's not something that comes around once a year. It's right in the middle. It is the primary theme of the Old Testament. It's the primary theme of God. That we're to do the just thing, the right thing. Not some of the time. All the time. And when we talk about God's justice, it's not just law. It's our whole lives. It's about closing the gap between the way things are today and the way things God meant them to be all along. That's what justice is. It goes along with the idea of shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. Making things right. And justice is a central theme. You might say a primary theme in the scriptures. It appears more than 400 times in the Old Testament. You see, friends, we serve a God of justice. It's God's character. God always does the right thing. If God does it, it is the right thing. Because he's God. And so, in Deuteronomy, the book of the law, right? The one that everybody's got to follow. It says this. The rock, God, his work is perfect. Yes, it is. For all his ways are, say it with me, justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he, says the law. But friends, justice doesn't just happen, does it? Now you look the other way and you have another news story. Another person beaten half to death or killed entirely. 
happens over and over and over again. Sometimes we know about it in our country. In other countries, you don't know about it at all. It just happens. No one even reports on it. Justice is important. It's really important to God. The next thing that God says is really important to him is loving kindness. We're to love kindness. We're to do the right thing. And not, and not just justice, but beyond justice. The word in Hebrew is hesed and includes faithfulness and loyalty. Not just justice, but true faithfulness and loyalty and love, which blesses both the giver and receiver. Last week, we learned that every blessing that, that comes is part of God's perfectness. So God says, be kind. And you know what? You're blessed. When you're kind, your blood pressure goes down. When you're kind, you sleep better. When you're kind, you actually have a better immune system. It's a blessing. If we'll just do what God asks of us, we'll be amazed at how much better our life gets so many times. And this idea of kindness appears more than 250 times in the Old Testament. So when you take this justice, doing the right thing with loving kindness, doing the right thing and some, 650 times. It is right in the middle. This is what God is wanting us to know. So we need to take it seriously, the prophets say. Even today. Now, when Jesus looked at justice and when Jesus looked at kindness, it was a way of life. It wasn't a one-time thing, right? It's, it's one's whole value system. It's one's total outlook on life, which is what we're getting to today, walking humbly with God your whole life. And kindness, friends, it's not a weakness. Jesus modeled it beautifully and perfectly. It's a way of living that has the power to change the world. You might even say that we're here today because of the power of love and kindness, the power of justice, that God makes all things new and right. Now, I came across this photo um, a few years back, actually. And uh, I, I was like, is that, right? is that photoshopped or is that real? That's George Bush and Hillary Clinton in an embrace, actually smiling and having a good day together. Uh, it, it was posted by my colleague, Michael Slaughter, uh, who's an amazing pastor, and he writes... This is an amazing pic taken at Nancy Reagan's funeral. They were grieving. They had both had a loss. Both profess faith in Christ. Both are United Methodists. What happens when we set aside differences and share what we have in common? Man, when's the last time you saw something like that? It's only six years ago. Right? Just about six years ago. In your lifetime. You might say we've come a long way since then. And not in the right direction. Right? It's important, this loving kindness. We are to walk humbly with God. Not beat each other up with our pride. Right? So walking humbly with God is being in right relationship with God. Letting God be God and us be us. Keeping our eyes on Him. The first uh, bishop, Peter, the disciple. He says, and all of you must, read it with me, clothe yourselves with humility. And you're like... Peter said that? Come on, Peter. Like, that's rich. Because Peter was always, you know, had some bravado to him. He knows this. The Lord has taught him. All of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's right. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. And why does Peter have to say this? Because it's not natural to anyone. You have to put it on. We're not born in humility. We're born in, look at me, look at me. If you know a two-year-old, you know what I'm saying. Right? That's just how it is. And then and there's a wonderful piece to that. But Peter says, no, no, no. You've got to clothe yourselves with humility. This is something you have to learn. This is a skill and a value you have to do over and over and over again. 
The great writer and Reverend Andrew Murray said it like this. He said, humility is the first duty and the highest virtue. Humility is the first duty and the highest virtue. This is a way that we come into right relationship with God. If we want to walk humbly with God, we have to do it in humility. And Jesus, of course, shows us this. He was always reversing whatever social ladder had been created. Still doing that today. And so in Luke 14, Jesus says it really clearly. For all who, what's that word? Exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And and that's our temptation, isn't it? To exalt ourselves. To make ourselves puffed up. To make ourselves important. To be easily offended because something didn't go our way. I have a, a mentor, uh, his name is Bob Logan. He started a few churches out in California. And one of the churches he started grew into the thousands pretty quickly. And uh, before he went on to do other things, he, he tells a story uh, in class when I was learning from him. He said there was a Sunday and he was at the receiving line as, as we do. People are kind of going out and this lady stopped him and she was like, Dr. Logan? He's like, yes. He's like, I'm not coming back. He's like, oh, well, why is that? By the way, we're always interested when people leave in a huff because, you know, you try not to do that again if you can help it. And she said, well, I'm just not getting anything out of worship. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you knew. It's not for you. We're not worshiping you. We're worshiping God. It didn't help. She didn't come back, I don't think. But you do understand this, right? When we worship, it's not for you. You're the worshipers, not the worshipee, right? You are the actors. God is the audience. I'm the prompter. I'm like, come on, sing, or come on, let's talk. Let's, let's, let's look in God's word. That's the way it is. That's what we do in worship. You bring yourselves before God, and you submit yourself to him. That's our true worship unto God. And so Jesus says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. The greatest among you will be your servant. Of course, he models this perfectly on the last night of his life. While everybody else is grumping about who's the greatest, Jesus picks up a towel and a bowl, begins to wash feet. God himself. You see, Jesus has something really important to teach us here, and that is that humility is freedom, friends. It really is. Humility is freedom. Humility is freedom from the control of our competitive reflex to oppose, outdo, or one-up others. And this is in all of us, friends. It really is freedom. So let me ask you. I know some of you are thinking, I don't, you know, we can just go by this one. I'm okay with this one. Do you have a humility problem? A number of years ago, uh, a comedian basically uh, said, you might be a redneck if. You all remember that? Might be a redneck if. And, and so let me, let me just, we're going to play with this a little bit. And um, we'll see if we can catch on. Do you offer unsolicited advice to others about how to live their lives better? If so, you might have a humility problem. Can you say that last part with me? You might have a humility problem. Do you have better suggestions than those around you? If you do, you might have a humility problem. Oh, come on. That's not that hard, right? When someone tells you a joke, do you feel compelled to tell a better one? I do. I actually do that one. Yeah, absolutely got me on that one. I do. I love jokes. Tell them to me all the time. I love them. But if you do, you might have a humility problem. And when you are with a group of your friends telling stories, are yours better? Come on, you know they're better. If that's what you think, 
you might have a humility problem. And do you let it slip just how smart or well-read you are in a casual conversation? That last podcast you heard, that really interesting new nugget from NASA. My son works at NASA, by the way. (laughs) Oh, if you do, you might have a humility problem, right? And And then, of course, there's this one. Mm-hmm. I see those heads turning. Mm-hmm. Or a side seat driver, right? If you are, you might have a humility problem. Or this is a painful one. Mm. When your spouse or friend makes a mistake with a, just a tiny little detail in a story, how do you respond? Do you let it go? Or do you correct the one you love in front of their friends? Man, it hurts. And, and man, and if, you're, and if you're in that group, it's painful to watch, isn't it? You're like, that's not going to go well when they get home. Right? So if you do that, you might have a humility problem. Friends, we all have a humility problem. It's called pride. It is. I mean, we, we know this. Is, no one is exempt from this. We all struggle with this. I love the way Ezra Benson puts it. He says, pride is concerned with who is right. Man, we get tied up there a lot these days. Humility is concerned with what is right. And that's what you see in Jesus. That's what God is concerned about. It's justice, it's love and kindness. It's walking humbly with God. Or in these days when you have a different opinion. When you have a different opinion, it's going to happen. Do you engage in a win all or lose debate? I mean, do you just go all in? Unfriend people? Or do you listen? And actually learn something you didn't know before. Actually look at someone else's point of view. Maybe grow a little bit. I have a friend that I met years ago named Jean Marie. And, and she wrote this, uh, I think about six weeks ago. And when I read it, I was like, ooh, it really arrested me. She writes, imagine if 10 years from now you hadn't learned anything. In 10 years, in a decade. Because you just continued to reinforce the beliefs that you already had. Would that be considered a win for you? Have you thought about it? Friends, think about it. Are you really choosing to remain stupid for a decade? That's a good question. We can turn it around. We can ask it a different way. How do people feel around you? How do they feel in the spaces around you? Do they feel smarter? Do they feel appreciated? Do they feel lifted up, exalted? Do they feel understood, seen? Do they feel accepted, encouraged, valued, or devalued? Do they experience consolation or desolation? I use the traditional language here because this has been used for thousands of years in our faith. Um, St. Ignatius And what's known as the prayer of examine, you ask this every night before you go to sleep before God. Where was my consolation and where was my desolation? And and really, all this means, friends, is when people around you, are they consoled? Are they comforted by you? Or are they devastated by you? Are they afraid that, that you know and they know you have something on them and you can embarrass them at any moment? And you use that as power in your relationship? Now, before you get too hard on yourself, just remember this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Less often. Because your focus is on God, not on you. 
you're walking with him. And when your focus is on God, it's not going to be on you or others' faults. It's going to be on him. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Rick Warren uh, took this concept from C.S. Lewis and made it really snappy. Right? He, he, he's basically saying uh, something similar to the poem that you may have heard. It's very famous by Marianne Williamson. She says, we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Say that with me. You are a child of God. Beautifully, wonderfully made friends. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightening about shrinking so that other people won't feel unsure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God. Amen? That's what you're for. It's within us all. It's not just in some of us. Read it with me. It is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we consciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And that's a great thing. That's good news. It really is pretty simple, friends. Pride is I know best. That's what pride is. That's all it is. I know best. And humility is simply God knows best. And that's where you want to live. It's a lot safer place to live. You're a lot less likely to be humbled if that's where you live, isn't it? William Law, if you haven't ever read him, I recommend him to you. Um, hundreds of years ago, um, he had some real truth. And he said it like this. He said, for all the needs that disturb human life, all of them, that make us uneasy to ourselves, quarrelsome with others, unthankful to God. Man, that's ugly, isn't it? When we're unthankful to God. That weary us in vain labors and foolish anxieties. That carry us from project to project, from place to place, in a futile pursuit of we know not what are the needs that neither God nor nature nor reason has subjected us to, but are solely infused into us by, say with me, pride. There it is. Since the very beginning of time. Envy, ambition, covetousness. Friends, we knew this in the 1600s, 1700s. Humility simply requires us to say, I might be wrong. Is that so tough? I might be. I might read something tomorrow that tells me I was wrong. By the way, I don't know, but I just do want to take a moment and thank Google for saving my family thousands of arguments in the car over time. There was a time before Google, we were like, is it this? No, it's that. And then you never knew. But now you just Google it and you're like, oh, yeah, I was wrong. It's easier. I might be wrong. I might. You know, really, when you say I might be wrong, you know what you're saying is I'm willing to learn something new. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Kerry Newhoff says when we're talking about humility, to stay humble. Never lose gratitude. Take the low place and keep your notebook open. Just keep it open. You can learn from anyone, from anyone. That's one of my favorite things to do now. It's called reverse mentoring. And if you've ever been around me when I'm struggling with a document on my computer, you know I need lots of reverse mentoring. I'm not very good at technology. I mean, I admit it. I don't remember my passwords and I hate updates. Can I get an amen from the old people? Right. I mean, passwords, my goodness. Right? The young people are like, dude, you're old. And then they help me. They fix stuff. They make it happen. You see, humility opens us up to the possibility of wisdom. Of really being able to be helpful in the world. And of course, Jesus shows us this perfectly. Friends, let's sum it up this way. Jesus came down to lift up. God himself chose to humble himself to lift the world up. 
Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him. Paul writes about this to the early church in Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in what? Humility, there it is again, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God. Hold, get that in your mind for a second. Equality with God as something to be exploited. All the power of the universe and the man named Jesus. And he chose not to use it. Rather, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, friends, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul writes this. Because all of that is true, he says, therefore, God also highly exalted him. Read that with me. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. Lifted him up and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Lord, our boss, and to the glory of God the Father. Because he humbled himself. God raised him up. The world did the worst it could do to Jesus. Friends, make no mistake, politics killed Jesus. Between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Roman guard. They all had a stake in him. The Almighty God humbled himself. Came to earth in the person of Jesus. And he welcomed all that he had made. And the have-nots, they couldn't believe it. How good it was. And the have-gots, they killed him for it. Because they were threatened. Yeah, the politics, they killed Jesus. But the greater power of love raised him. It is love and humility that raised him. Yep, politics killed Jesus, but love raised him. And that same love can lift you, can raise you. On Sunday nights when I was a boy, we used to have Sunday night church. Anybody here ever go to Sunday night church back in the day? Yeah. And, and my dad would preach and my mom would play piano and we would, you know, we would yell out songs that we wanted to sing. And one of the songs that I just has stayed with me all my life is love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help. Love lifted me. The course is love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love. Say it with me. Love lifted me. And Jesus says, yep. Now go lift others. Now you go lift others. And we say, of course, but Jesus, we don't know how. And he says, yes, you do. You do. Same with me. Be just. Be kind. Be humble. That's it. That's it. That's how you lift others up. You walk with God. You keep your eyes on him. When God says, do something, you do. When he says, don't do something, you don't do it. It really is that simple. Be just. Be kind. Be humble. So, this week, I want to encourage you. Even this afternoon, think about somebody in your life. That you're going to be with this week. How can you lift them up? How can you put them in the spotlight. In the most beautiful way. And particularly if their parents are around. Or their friends are around. How do you publicly compliment someone. With the people who love them. Or they love or around. It's the most beautiful thing you can do. Right? It's much better than just a compliment on your own. 
I, I try to do this all the time when people come to our church, your moms or dads or brothers or sisters come. I will, I'll do my best to try to think of something that you've done as a contribution here because all of you make wonderful contributions here. And, and then when moms or grandmas, particularly this happens at Christmas and Easter, it's one of my favorite things. I'm like, oh yeah, they make such a difference here. They do these wonderful things. Yeah, I went on a mission trip with them or they help with the children's ministry or they're working with the youth group or they're a great greeter or whatever it is. And you can just watch people just light up because they're being lifted up. They're being exalted by love. Love's lifting them. And friends, when you're tempted the other direction to embarrass someone, don't. Just don't. And if you've been embarrassed and you know you have, you know what that feels like. Just commit to yourself right now. Think about the world will change. If every person in this room simply commits, I will never embarrass another person again. I just refuse to do it. Because it's ugly. And it's the opposite of God. It tears down people. It doesn't lift them up. And love lifts us up. Amen? Right? We want to be lifters. And so instead of doing that, just, you know, maybe privately confess and address your own worry instead that will help be just be kind be humble and all of god's people say amen let's pray the prayer that jesus taught us our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.